The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. This is Virginia Collin, and I will be talking today with Dr. Ginny Trierweiler. She's a child's. <laughs> yeah. You can say your name for us, okay? I will talk with Dr. Ginny Trierweiler. Thank you. <laughs> Ginny is a child psychologist and has studied child development in depth for 30 years, more than 30 years, with an emphasis on the great capability and curiosity and self-reliance that young children very often show. She has also directed a nationally renowned early childhood Montessori school for five years. And that may have been some of what got her started down the road toward the book that she's working on right now called Born for Brilliance. Uh, where would you like to start, Jenny? Yeah, that's right, Virginia. I would start, I think, with talking about how amazed I was, even after studying child psychology and child development for so many years, when I saw children in the school where my nephew was going to school, I was just blown away by their capability. And I thought, if a child psychologist who's done infant research doesn't know that little kids have this much capability, then other people don't know. And I really wanted to try to figure out, well, what's different about this school that these children look so capable and confident and compassionate, even as like two-year-olds? It was very intriguing to me. Okay. Um, did you have children of your own? No, I didn't. Okay, I, so in yeah. school is where you, the first place where you got to see it. Yeah, well, I mean, I worked with hundreds of children and their parents as a child psychologist. But uh-huh. still, watching the children in this school, there was something different happening, something really different. Tell me about that. Well, um, one day I sat and observed lunchtime with a group of toddlers, so about 14 months to about three years old, and uh, it was really different scene than I was used to, even though I had worked in Head Start programs, et cetera. The, uh, the, like one child was washing the table for 20 minutes, which I didn't even know that a toddler could work for 20 minutes. It's not something I had ever seen in my whole career. And another child was putting a flower in a vase and putting that on the table. So there were about eight children in the room and about three adults. And the adults were helping a few of the littler kids kind of get their toileting done and their hands washed. But the rest of the kids were doing all the work themselves. So I saw one, like, 16-month-old child who uh, had finished washing his hands and went and got his spoon and fork and plate. And he just looked so happy 
to be doing this little job. And he took it over to his seat and he set the things where they were supposed to go. And he sat there kind of bouncing, feeling really joyful. And because he was bouncing, he knocked one of his spoons on the floor. And none of the (laughs) adults came running over. He just got out of his chair, picked up the spoon, took it to the dirty dish bin, and then went and got a new clean spoon and went and sat down. Cheerful again, but not bouncing as much. So I could just, then when they finally sat down to eat, everyone had their hands washed and all their places were set. There was a little girl going around serving bread to the rest of her friends, looking very proud of herself. Um, They sang a song and they were just deliriously happy and courteous having this meal together. And I found I had tears in my eyes. I just couldn't believe how, how human these children were. And it's not how I've seen toddlers in restaurants or (laughs) in the family at home behave. So it really made me curious about, well, what is, what is going on here that these aren't the terrible twos? These are terrific children. And what can, what's your explanation? How is it that these, that these kids were... Well, I don't want us so, to be over in so one minute. so much expertise but. at such an early age, so much expertise. <laughs> How did the school teach well, that? So my, I decided my colleague and I, she was a Montessori teacher. Um, she and I decided to observe what was happening in that school and understand what was different about what was happening there from what was happening with toddlers in other places. And over the course of a year, we observed seven things that people were doing quite differently in the school um, compared to what people tend to be doing with toddlers. And so, yeah, I go around and teach people about these seven things right now. But one thing that we really noticed is that the young children had this kind of inherent drive to be able to do what what other people are able to do. So if somebody's able to set the table, they want to be able to set the table if, if uh, somebody's able to wash their hands, they want to be able to wash their hands. And what we tend to do in society nowadays is do all these things for them. So you hear toddlers all the time having meltdowns and tantrums saying, I want to do it myself. And the difference here was that they really, they knew that. They knew that these children had more capability than we tend to trust, and they were letting them do a lot more for themselves. So that's kind of one, one of the biggest observations. I see. Yeah. So I'm just thinking kids don't know how to set a table until somebody teaches them. So it's just that that these teachers were starting at a much earlier age, assuming that the kids were quite capable of learning it. You know, you just do it, they'll copy you. The teachers knew that it would take 20 or 30 minutes for a child that age to, you know, clean and set the table. And so they broke the task down into much smaller steps than we tend to when we're showing a child how to do things. Mm-hmm. The other thing okay. is when the child went, you know, they would show the child how to do it and it was their turn to do it. And then when it was the child's turn, they didn't interrupt and correct them. You know, if we think about being at work and, you know, having our boss stand over our shoulder telling us, no, that's not the way to do that. or you're spelling that wrong? Um, we would all hate that kind of environment. But that's often how we do it with small children. So they would, mm-hmm. they would take turns. It would be either the teacher's turn to show how to do it or it would be the child's turn to do it. The adults didn't constantly interrupt them. I see. I see. Um, yeah, I, I remember that from reading a little about the Montessori method. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that you, you teach children. And children catch their own mistakes, 
If the spoon falls on the floor, you realize, you know, I need a clean spoon. My spoon's on the floor. So that one knows where the dirty spoons go. Yes. And, I think, and that was one of the seven keys that we observed is that they let the children learn from their own mistakes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it meant they had to show the children where the dirty dish bin was and where the clean dishes were, you know, and they had to set up the, they had to set up the room so that children knew where things were, um, but then they had to let them do it and learn from their own mistakes. I see. You do often see uh, parents or teachers swoop in with, when a child spills something, instead of letting the child learn to clean up their own spills. Mm-hmm. That's true, you do. So, what, um, what I as you've is, said, a lot oh, of parents take a different approach from that. A lot of parents um, are much more hands-on, either giving instructions or doing mm-hmm. things for the child. Yes. Does, that, does that come from misconceptions that we generally have as a society about what young children are like and what they're capable of? I think so. You know, we live in a time where I feel that there's a lot of uh, love and affection for small children, for infants and toddlers, but not a lot of respect for their capabilities. Um, And so I know running a daycare program, the, the Montessori school I ran was licensed as a daycare Um, you get the impression that the people who regulate daycares want you to keep the children tied up with their hands covered all the time. You know, we don't want anything, we don't want them to get dirty and we don't want them to get hurt. So instead of letting them explore the environment, we have gone sort of in an extreme direction of limiting their movement and their curiosity and their wanting to do things themselves. Do you... Do you know whether that happens commonly in homes as well as in daycare settings? Oh, very much, yeah. In fact, um, a lot of times parents would get there at the end of the day at the Montessori school and their child had been doing things for themselves all day and the parent would arrive in, in a hurry because parents these days tend to work long hours and they got to get home and feed their children, etc. And they would kind of swoop in and pick up the child and put the child's shoes and coat on and the children would just freak out because it, all day they'd been treated like people with capability and that's not how their parents were showing up at that moment. So parents often didn't know, like they would say to the teacher, my child can't put his shoes on. The teacher would say, yes, he can. He's been doing it every day for three months. Wow. And can the child do it quickly enough for the parent to get home (laughs) on time for the next, or to get to the next daycare center and pick up the older child or whatever? That's that's the big challenge now with parenting. I think we're so busy that it's hard to give children the time they need So if it takes a child 30 minutes to do something we can do in two, you know, Mm -hmm. that may be one of the biggest reasons that we're interrupting their kind of hard work to become capable. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You and I are not well acquainted, but it seems to me that you've said something about, you know, the way we handle our young children actually tends to hold them back. Um, is, Is that right? Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, um, you know, I feel, you know, our safety first kind of attitude and our push for school readiness is leading us astray when it comes to young children. So they're born with this incredible drive to learn and become capable, and they will do it. They'll work really hard. If you think of a child learning to walk, they don't care how many times they fall, they're going to do this. 
Um, and if we feel like, oh, I don't like when you fall, I really want to prevent that, then our tendency might be, and I had some parents say, you know, meet my beautiful two-year-old daughter. Her feet have never touched the ground. You know, <gasps> that's how much we love her. Uh, but, you know, I'm hearing it like, wow, she can't walk. <laughs> she has no sense of confidence in her body or how to get herself anywhere. These are really important basic skills. It's not like she won't learn to walk, but she's been trained to be passive and pretty for the first two years of life, and that's not natural for a child. Yeah, you probably heard me gasp. <laughs> I did hear you gasp. I can't, I can't imagine a two-year-old child whose feet have not touched the ground. Yeah, she had a really beautiful uh, that's, dress on. <laughs> that's, I, I mean, that child has missed out on so much fun yes. and so yes. many learning opportunities. Yes. I had a grandparent recently tell me she's taking care of the three grandchildren and the youngest is now a toddler and their impulse was to put fences up everywhere so the child can't go anywhere. And I had talked to her a little about my approach and she said, well, I, we took a totally different approach with this child and we're really letting her move and explore. And she's just more comp- confident and more capable than we would have ever thought. It was really nice to hear. Yeah. I'm, I have some acquaintance with the uh, idea of uh, putting up gates or fences to limit uh-huh. the area that a child moves in. And often it's because there's so much they could get into that you don't want them to get into yes. in all those kitchen and cabinets and drawers, for example. Yes. Um, if, if somebody's following approach, an approach more like what you recommend, mm-hmm. how, do, how do you advise parents to deal with that? They still have to think about the child safety issues and what needs to be put up. You know, um, even throughout human history, um, children weren't protected to anywhere near the degree they are now. So even, you know, tribes that killed things with poison arrows, you know, they would put the poison arrows up, but a lot of the things, the knives and other kinds of tools that they worked with were around where the children could be around them and they just showed them how to handle them. So we're a little, we go a little extreme um, compared to what humans have tended to do throughout history. We really don't trust that children can use any kind of judgment at all. As a psychologist, I can tell you that I was definitely trained that way. You know, I, I was definitely trained to be very worried about children's safety and be very vigilant about parents not keeping kids safe enough. But it really just hit me over the head to see how many ways we're holding children back from what they're capable of. So I think we have to care about that side, too. Do you have a specific story or two? Well, I guess you've already told us one little story about a girl (laughs) with a very pretty dress. Do you have other stories that illustrate how we're holding kids back? Yes. Um, Well, I I like to talk about Layla. Um, Her mom, Faith, had always had this vision of what kind of mom she wanted to be and what kind of relationship she wanted to have with her child and that she really wanted to be the kind of mom who raised a child to be smart and confident and successful and uh, happy. But she got pregnant earlier than she planned and she wasn't staying with the baby's father. And then to top it all off, her mother died while, while she was pregnant before she delivered the baby. So she had a lot less support than she ever expected. And You know, her baby was born just perfect and gorgeous, and everybody also felt like she was kind of a handful, even as a baby. She was very busy and outgoing and demanding, and 
I think the the most common description people had for her was that she was sassy. So her friends and her family really coached her to, you know, you're really going to have to get on top of this child and teach her how to be respectful and how to be good. And so Faith was doing her best, but she was feeling like this isn't turning out how I thought it was going to turn out. I'm not, I'm, you know, this child is tantruming all the time. I don't feel like I'm the mom I wanted to be. I don't feel like I'm really helping her become the child that I wanted to help her become. So we uh, we built a relationship, and I started observing them, and I could see why she wasn't comfortable. You know, Layla, as a toddler, would want to put on her own shoes, and Faith would correct her and end up putting her shoes on for her, and then Layla would scream and cry and throw things. And when Layla wanted to help set the table, we talked about this already, you know, as soon as she spilled anything, her mom jumped in and took it all away from her and did it and put her in the high chair and kind of locked her in, and it, another tantrum. So when I talked to Faith, you know, remember your goals about having a happy, smart, successful child and having a great relationship, I'm going to encourage you to do some things differently. So one is slow down and show her how to do things and then let her do things. And if she spills, you can show her how to clean up the spills. But respect her as an individual with her own dignity. Every, every person wants to be self-directed. And so how much can you let her be self-directed and get her things that fit her hands? You know, she's trying to do self-care activities and she'll want to brush her teeth and you want to encourage that. And she's trying to participate meaningfully in the community like a human being and you want to encourage that. So one of my keys to her, and this is one of the keys that we observed in our study was help her just enough to be, that she can do it herself but don't help her too much and don't do it too, for her. Um, so don't interrupt or correct her when she's working hard at learning to do something. Mm-hmm. So Faith really liked this kind of releasing her brilliance approach much better. And it, was, it made sense to her, even though it wasn't how she'd been raised. And it worked. And Layla really stopped tantruming. It became much more rare instead of an everyday occurrence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she became this child who loves reading and math. And she's also a real natural leader. And Faith really believes that they, they have a bright future. And, so, and their how, relationship is the kind they are, oh, she always hoped for. How old is this child now? Or, or last she's now time? Seven. You... She's just gorgeous. Oh, wow. And That's it great. It just turned everything around in their relationship, you know. So one of the keys is to slow down and give the child time to learn it and do it and make mistakes and fix it. Yes, Yes, exactly. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned the make mistakes point. (laughs) Yeah, I think you made that point well. We're we're kind of phobic of mistakes, and it's not helpful. People learn from making mistakes. That's true. If we don't let children make mistakes and do things, then we are kind of training them to be passive. Yeah, yeah, and uh, probably there are some parents who would simply prefer that their children be passive, but uh, yeah. probably it's better for most kids to feel competent Yeah, and take care of it themselves. Well, we don't want them to be passive. They turn 18, and now we want them to kind of grow up and start doing things on their own, And but we spent their whole childhood teaching them to be passive. It doesn't work. It feels unfair. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to take a short break, and I will be back soon talking with Dr. Ginny Trierweiler. 
about how children are born for brilliance and we should support that and get out of their way. (laughs) Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, Visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Babies are born for brilliance, and that's what I'm talking about today with my guest, Dr. Dr. Jenny Trierweiler. I'm going to mess up your name the whole show. I'm sorry. It's a hard name. (laughs) So so I'm Virginia Collin. I'm your host here on Family Matters. And Dr. Dr. Jenny has contributed parenting and child development expertise on CBS News and on Yahoo Parenting. And you can learn more about her work on bornforbrilliance.com. So we were just talking about seven keys to encouraging children's natural inclination to become competent and self-reliant. Where would you like to go next? Another one of the keys or another story? Yeah, I have a story um, about how this relates to uh, compassion and courtesy among children. Um, I talked already about the uh, the lunchtime and how c- 
courteous and considerate the children were, toddlers were at lunchtime, which I, I was amazed by. I had another experience like that at the school where I, um, I was walking out to my car and walked by the playground and I heard a little girl on the playground crying and these were three and four year olds. And so I went over to the fence and asked if she needed help. And two of the other girls came over to me with their hands on their hips and said, excuse me, we will help her, and uh, basically dismissed me, letting me know that they understood this to be their community, and I really wasn't part of it, which I wasn't, and that they could take care of each other. And it just, I, I started to realize that their ability to be compassionate and caring towards each other came from feeling like they were real members of a community. It wasn't a classroom where somebody was doing everything for them or they all had to sit around and listen to an adult all day. They all were becoming uh, participating members of their community, and that's what helped them learn to be caring and compassionate for each other. It's interesting. Yeah, that is. So, yeah. does it surprise you at all? I it does think, a little. Um, yeah. it's not it's not something that I saw happening on the playground at the daycare center where my daughter stayed. That's uh, right. Uh, actually, I saw one little boy chase a little girl all over the playground, and she clearly wanted nothing to do with him. And no <laughs> one, child or teacher, intervened. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, and it's too much if we expect the teachers to be able to manage 20 children and, and um, or, you know, maybe two teachers and 20 children. That's what the, that's what the rule was for ours. So they have, you have to help them become part of the community and take care of each other if it's going to feel like a healthy community. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, lists are fun sometimes, and you've mentioned seven keys. Um, yes. How many of those have we already discussed? Um, at least two of them. Okay, which two? Help no more and no less than is needed. Uh, okay. Um, and give young children a meaningful role in the community. Okay. So what's number three? Uh, okay, number three might surprise people too. Give young children real challenging work. I have a great picture that illustrates this when I do uh, workshops, which is uh, about a two-year-old hammering uh, real nails into a, into a stump with a real hammer. <laughs> He's got safety glasses on, and he is loving it. He is loving this job. Now, this is not something most people would allow a two-year-old to do, right? Uh-huh. But it's real, and it's meaningful. It's the kind of thing people do, and he loved it, and he was willing to to work hard at it. And what I noticed is some of the most important skills people need to develop that make them successful in life have to do with being able to focus your attention and your concentration mm-hmm. um, and manage yourself toward a goal, mm-hmm. um, what we often call executive functions, I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. Those kinds of skills only develop through working at something that's challenging. Mm-hmm. So little children need work that's challenging for them. So that's interesting. I'm picturing this two-year-old with safety glasses on, (laughs) pounding nails into a stump and thinking, well, that's not really useful work, uh, putting nails (laughs) in the stump. But then you're right. This child is practicing a skill that does have a real work application. And 
probably, you know, I, I would not naturally be inclined to put a hammer in the hands of a two-year-old. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. if they swing and hit their thumb the way I did when I was seven or eight or ten, uh-huh. they probably aren't going to have as nearly as much force behind that swing That's as true. an older child. Maybe two years old is a great age for learning how to <laughs> handle a hammer. Yeah, I mean, he was developing motor skills, and he, but he also was developing that attention and concentration and, and self-control. You know, self-control is one of the biggest predictors of life success. And if we're controlling them for the first three years and only ask them to start using self-control later, they've missed a bunch of great opportunities for that brain development. I did not know that, that self, self-control is a great predictor of later success. Yes. Um, yeah, if you, I encourage people to watch the marshmallow video on YouTube and look at the research that was done with uh, little children being asked, um, given a marshmallow and told if they can wait until the researcher comes back, they can get another marshmallow. And that kind of skill, developing the ability to keep yourself from doing something that you want to do, it can really translate into life success. So when they followed children and looked at them at age 35, it predicted how well they were handling credit, how much money they were making, their social relationships, um, how well they were doing on jobs. Wow. It's amazing. But when you think about it, it makes sense. You have to develop self-control to be able to be a successful adult. I'm going to look that one up. That sounds really intriguing. It's really intriguing. I just have to give this caveat of asking people, don't go test your children with marshmallows. It's not quite exactly like that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, Um, you mentioned one story about a two-year-old who had terrible, who had tantrums at times. A lot of people Uh talk about two-year-olds as being at a difficult age. This is the age of the terrible twos. Um, Mm -hmm. What's really true and what's not so true about the terrible twos? Well, I I learned one thing as a psychologist and another thing working in the school. Um, They certainly, at two years old or that toddler age, they are are looking to be really more independent and self-reliant. And so lots of times when we do things for them, that's when they will have a tantrum especially also if they're tired or hungry, right? They just don't have that much control over their emotions. But we can really reduce the number of tantrums when we give them more opportunities to do things for themselves and when we slow down. Um, Mm -hmm. If we weren't in such a hurry all the time, they would be doing much less tantruming. And Mm -hmm. actually, when they're tantruming, it often slows you down. So you think you're going to rush in, pick up your child, and rush out. And I saw parents you know, threatening to leave their children there because the child's having a tantrum. It didn't actually make things go faster. Right. I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that answers your question. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so maybe I should get back on, on uh, seven keys. Okay. Uh, we've got, the first one was help no more and no less than needed. The second one was give the child a meaningful role in the community. And the third one was to give them real challenging work. Let's mm-hmm. keep going. What's next? Yes. And th- let me just say about real, the real aspect of challenging work, too, is when they're doing self-care or they're doing care of the environment, that's real stuff that everybody has to do. We really ought to let them do those things when they're, 
when they're toddlers. Let's see, and then another one is um, let them work to their heart's content without undue interrupting or correcting. And I alluded to this already, but when a child is working at something difficult like washing the table and it's taking them 30 minutes, um, let them learn through the process. Like you said, making mistakes on their own and learning from their mistakes. So I just like the term, let them work to their heart's content. It's sort of what we felt we were seeing. I see. Does it communicate anything to you, Virginia? Working to their heart's content. Um, Well, since a lot of parents don't even expect the child to work at such an early age, letting Mm -hmm. them work as they want, as long as they want to, could really be a foreign concept. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. But think about even a toddler who's just putting their socks on and taking their socks off and putting their socks on and taking their socks off. And parents can feel like that is worthless. <laughs> Why do they keep doing that? But that's exactly how they develop skill and competency, the physical part, the motor skills, but also the brain development, the ability to focus their attention on something and stick with something. I see. So if we interrupt them after the first three times they do it, we're interrupting that brain development of attention and concentration. And everybody can think of a common disorder of attention that is very highly diagnosed these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, seem, it almost seems as if we can't have as much attention deficit disorder as gets diagnosed. It almost seems like that, yeah. And I don't know what the latest research is on what people believe about that. But I, but I believe if we constantly interrupt them when they're trying to attend to something, we probably are contributing to this difficulty with focusing attention. Yeah. So a theme that's coming through here is that it may really help a lot of parents if they can somehow arrange their times, so their lives, so you can give a child time to go slowly and take as long as it needs. Yeah, I love that. That's a great summary. Yep. Oh, give a thank child you. Time. <laughs> I think the day that I was watching the children prepare their lunch and and have their lunch and I had tears in my eyes, that was kind of what was going through my mind. Is it it all all we have to do maybe is just slow down and let them do more and they become human beings, which they always intended to become. Right. And we we definitely want them to become good, grown up. (laughs) Independent, capable human beings. Self-reliant, yeah. Yeah, maybe not all parents have that goal, but a good majority, I think, do. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Yeah, I think people do have that goal, but they think of it happening later. But Mm. these early years are a great chance to develop foundational skills. Mm -hmm. We don't want to treat those early years like they don't matter. The other thing that we're doing a lot of is treating the early years like the years we need to teach them academic skills and get them school ready, and I, I think that's just a big mistake. Okay, you know, tell me more about that. Well, for one thing, parents are taught to kind of talk to their children all the time, and young children do need to work on language, and there's, there's a time for that. But when your child is really trying to concentrate on something, it will just interrupt them and stop their concentration if you're talking. So kind of becoming more alert to what's my child trying to learn right now? Is it something social or is it language or is it concentration and attention? 
I see. So that might be, for example, if a child is really involved in working on a puzzle, mm-hmm. that would be good to let them finish the puzzle without saying, oh, honey, by the way, what, what do we want to do later when we go outside? <laughs> exactly. Especially with, those, with children in the first few years, they're so wired to learn language that that will just interrupt everything. As soon as we start talking, that's all they're going to focus on, typically. So, mm-hmm. yeah, being, being aware that being able to concentrate and persist at something is important, too. I see. Um, okay. So, letting them work to their heart's content was another one of the keys. What else? Um, okay, the, the one that I put first is to support their active, self-directed learning and initiative and give them choices. There's a lot of research that shows that people learn better when they choose what they're learning. And probably anybody who's listening can think about something that they worked hard at because they liked it, they were interested. Um, And children are absolutely ready to work very hard at learning as long as we let them, as long as we let them be active and choose what they're learning. I think the other thing that I realize about that is that we can become great at things that we're, that we're interested in uh, enough to work hard at. And we'll mm-hmm. never become great at things that people have to force us to study. Doesn't mean we might not sometimes do that, but mm-hmm. let's not interrupt when somebody's working at something that could allow them to become great, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have a, an example in mind that illustrates that point well? I do. It's more than a... More than a one-minute story. Um, let me think of a shorter one for, because I know you have a commercial break coming up. Oh no, um, we can we can do a long story and just take the break a little bit later. It'll be fine. Okay. Okay, great. Well, yeah, I think about this little boy Eddie, um, who was uh, his parents were professionals, and they had some concerns about him even in infancy. He didn't like to make eye contact. He was kind of uncertain about people. He didn't like to be held. Um, so he'd become absorbed watching older children skateboarding, etc. but he would become really upset if anybody looked at him. And the social worker at his daycare was really getting concerned that he didn't connect to people the way other children did, and maybe they should do some testing. Um, and his parents came to me because they felt like there's something, there's something about Eddie that's okay about this, and we don't know what it is or how to explain it, but help us understand So I worked with them to observe him with an open mind and trust that one way or another he'd become who he was meant to be. So don't direct him too much. Just notice what he's interested in and engage with him in his interests. And think of him as being in a process of self-construction. You're not trying to make him into something. He's trying to make himself into what he was born to be. So I I encourage them when he's working at something that's really intriguing to him, let him work to his heart's content. So they talk, uh, talked about, you know, bundling him up to take him outside in the snow, you know, at one and a half and how he cried and hated it and wanted to go back inside, but then watched his dad out the window shoveling. And he became very interested in watching that. He could watch it hours on end. And then he wanted to shovel. And so they got him a small shovel and they just kind of kept following his interests. Um, Mm -hmm. And they noticed that when he was shoveling, he would pay attention to the different results that came from different ways of shoveling, if you know what I mean. I have paid much attention to that in my (laughs) lifetime. (laughs) 
So, you know, just over the next, uh, uh, next several years, they found that he made friends fine. He continued to avoid aggressive children, but he always has been fascinated with learning how things work. And so they tell about uh, his kindergarten graduation, and the teacher asked each child to get up and say one word that describes who they are on the inside. And he said, engineer. And wow. So, yeah, so because they were willing to take an open, curious attitude about who he was becoming and didn't feel they had to make him into someone uh, or something, he was able to become more of what he was already naturally going to become, which really probably is an engineer. So they were able to keep putting things in front of him that fascinate him, and that means he's able to keep becoming this brilliant person he was born to be. And it's wonderful. It's, it's really cool to see. That There's is nothing excellent. to worry about with this child. Okay. <laughs> All right. We will take a, a break now, and I will be back to Dr. Ginny, whom you can also find online at bornforbrilliance.com. We'll be back in a minute. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radioshow at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. 
I'm your host, Virginia Collin. My guest today, Dr. Ginny Trierweiler. I'm sorry, I hug your name. <laughs> I'm you just every time. But uh, Dr. Ginny uh, yes. gives keynote speeches and workshops for parents and for early childhood educators to help them learn how to nurture an, a young child's natural desire to learn, their natural learning drive, and their capacity for intelligence and capability, self-reliance and compassion. And not waiting until they're in kindergarten. This starts in the first three years of life. If you'd like to find Dr. Ginny and offer her an opportunity to speak to a group about that, you can go to bornforbrilliance.com. Meanwhile, we've been talking about some of the keys that Dr. Ginny includes when she is teaching on this topic. So where were we, or what's next? <laughs> well, um, you know, the first one I, I, I usually talk about is supporting active self-directed learning and giving choices. We talked about that. The other way that I talk about that one is, is respecting their dignity. And so when you look at dignity, and people do study this. There are people at Harvard who study dignity, and um, you find that one of the keys for being treated with dignity is feeling that who you are is accepted and that you are able to be self-reliant and self-directed. So everybody grows up and they want to be as self-directed as possible. Well, even small children feel that way. So when we talk about respect and compassion, we we model that by really respecting their dignity as human beings by not trying to make them into somebody. It feels amazing to children. They just behave completely differently when they don't feel we're trying to make them into something. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to bring that down to a concrete level of um, mm-hmm. what, what maybe what there is in my life experience. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I remember one example... Um, was that, uh, I think it's about, I don't know, a toddler of some age, maybe 16 months old, who um, we encouraged the, the parents to get a small table and chairs that he could sit at instead of a high chair where you have to lock them in and they don't have any control, very much control of their own bodies. And just how the parents commented how the way he sat in that chair, it was like he became a human being or like he felt like he was being treated like a human being for the first time, not like a toy or a doll. Ah, okay. He just sat up really straight and behaved more mature and human. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, I could see how that, that, yeah, that might be a tough transition for the parent because while they're in a high chair, they're confined and... (laughs) They might even yeah. be wearing a seatbelt these days. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if the well, chair's at, at ground level, they can get up and wander off. Um, yes, that's right. So I guess you have to start learning how to get along with each other in an environment that supports a lot more freedom of choice. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they behave better when they don't feel we're trying to control them all the time. That, oh. that was very obvious to me in this study. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Great. it's an interesting question. I, I, I really like thinking about the question of dignity in young children. Mm-hmm. It helps me. 
Is well, there any... Too, uh, I don't have it. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it's not one of the... I didn't list it as one of the seven keys. We talked a lot about it, but um, the other key that isn't one of the seven is that the children were in multi-age groupings. And this was seemed to be central to learning compassion, that older children learned compassion by needing to take care of younger children. I see. I don't know if that connects to the point of dignity, but it seemed like it did when I started down that path. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, do you remember anything in particular that people were doing at this Montessori school um, or, or program um, that, you know, was anybody actively teaching older kids, you know, mm. Please be sympathetic because this younger one just fell and scraped her knee and she's crying and it hurts. Yeah, were they, Was somebody <laughs> actively teaching that or did it just come out naturally or it, what? They did teach it. Um, I, in fact, it reminds me that one of the first days I was there, there was a fire drill and we had to get infants and toddlers and preschool children out of the building really fast and how, how well the children handled it. You know, no one was freaking out. But as I got back to the fence, there was a group of three- and four-year-olds, and one of them had a very concerned look and looked like she was going to start crying. And the teacher turned to her friend and said, you know, Katie's a little bit scared right now. Would you mind comforting her? And so the, the friend that she turned to turned and put her arms around her. And so I think they were kind of frequently prompting, like, this person needs help right now. Do you see that? And can you help? Ah, what a great idea. Right? Yeah. It was touching. It was a really touching thing to see. Oh, that's great. It just okay. makes it, it just made me realize you don't you don't need, you know, adults being one on one with children all the time for children to be learning a lot. They can learn from each other too. Yeah, I think that uh, in in the way that most societies have been organized for most of history, uh the kids were in a pack. <laughs> the children were yes. hanging out with each other, and, and maybe they had some That's work right. that they were supposed to do, but uh, they didn't have tight supervision from adults a lot of the time. So true. And they learned a lot from each other. They became very capable. And in those like hunter-gatherer societies, there, there was no bullying, and people were quite compassionate towards each other. So I think the separating by age thing has been a really big mistake in our in our modern culture. We've taken away okay. the opportunity for children to learn some things about compassion in kind of natural ways. I see. Are there other things you notice that uh, seem to make, you know, raising children to be self-reliant and curious and compassionate, other things that the way our society is organized now make that more difficult? Yeah, the environments, the the way that the home environment and the way that the um, school environments are set up makes it difficult. So a lot of preschools, for example, are very cluttered. If you walk into a preschool, you might smile because you see stuffed animals and bright colors, but the research actually shows that having all that clutter is very disorganizing to children. They don't learn as much. They don't remember as much. Um, so... It's also a matter of how we set up the environments. I remember um, 
meeting a mom at one time when I was a mom and I had young children of my own and not a lot of experience with it. And this particular mom uh, kept, had, you know, everything was put away and it was in its own place and Mm -hmm. her child took something out and played with it and, you know, kind of spread the pieces around the room. And then when he was done playing with it and he got up to go get something else to play with, she said, wait, you have to put this one away first. And yes. for me, that was a novel experience. <laughs> yeah, a child, and did he? you have to clean up the first one before you get the second one out. Yeah, but for that so child, that that was just normal life, right. and it was like, oh, I forgot. Okay, so then he put that one away, and he picked something else to play with, and the environment yes. was still very calm and clean and orderly. Yes, and that helps with learning. And it changed and it the him. way I, I raised my kid. <laughs> and it what? It, it, it changed isn't? the way I raised my child. Oh, yeah. See, you I were telling me about observing too. <laughs> you were telling me a story about your son opening presents on Christmas. I think it'd be great for people to hear that. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, that one happened by accident, and I think that this is one of the ones that I got right just by intuition or instinct or something um we it was christmas morning there were lots of presents under the tree and i had two kids and and the older one i I always insisted that the kids open the presents one at a time so you can really appreciate what each one is before you set Mm -hmm. it aside to find out what the next wonderful thing is but she did hers one by one and enjoyed them and and got them all open and then picked something to play with meanwhile her little brother who was uh probably mm, just slightly over two years old Mm -hmm. um opened a present and was really intrigued with it and liked with it liked it and started exploring what he could do with it and played with it and played with it <laughs> and 45 minutes went by before he was interested in opening another present. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And I, I had the presence of mind to not tell him to hurry up and open up all his wonderful presents. I just <laughs> let him thoroughly enjoy the one that was in front of him. Nice. And and he did the same thing with the second present. You know, he just yeah, really wow. explored it and enjoyed it. And, you know, opening his presents might have taken him four hours. And he loved <laughs> those f- whole four hours. <laughs> right. And then when they do it, just rip everything open and put it down and go and watch TV. It's so It feels like we missed the boat. Yeah. So that's yeah, wonderful. Really I feel like our I, I feel like parents' instincts will take them the right way, but it's really that our society has gone a certain direction with being scared that children are going to get hurt yeah. all the time. Um, well, well, that has I led parents away. With, whether parents' instincts will take them right the right direction, I think varies a lot from one parent to another. It varies mm-hmm. a lot according to what their childhood experiences mm-hmm. were like and Very what their point. parents taught them about how to handle children. Um, That's a very good point. So this was just a, a point where I was lucky that day. <laughs> Yay! Parenting win. <laughs> are there any um, any of the keys that you usually talk to people about? Are there any that we haven't mentioned? I think the only other one is to demonstrate confidence in their abilities. So when they're struggling with something, instead of swooping in to say, oh, let me help you, I hate to see you struggle, um, show confidence that they can work through the struggle. That will give them confidence that they can work through things when they're difficult. Okay. 
we're getting close to the end of our time together on Family Matters. Um, any last thoughts that you would like to share or anything we've already mentioned that you'd like to particularly emphasize? No, I'd probably, I always like to ask people after I talk with them, if you were to summarize this in one, one sentence, what would you say? What is the message that comes through in one sentence? I think what has come through most clearly to me is that even very young children are or can be much more capable than we sometimes give them credit for. If we can somehow arrange our lives so we can slow, da- slow down and give them time to practice their skills and become self-reliant, that will work out well for everyone. I think that I'm was so two inspired. sentences I cheated. <laughs> <laughs> it's an inspiring message, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and babies and toddlers are wonderful. I just, I yeah. love watching them. I love watching their natural curiosity and, and the way they learn about the world if you just let them. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Right. Well, we are out of time. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Dr. Colin. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.